Well, if you have your Bibles, I do ask that you would turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. Uh, we are continuing through a series in the book of Philippians. And we are getting closer to wrapping it up. We're going to be in chapter 4, verses 10 to 13. These words are also provided in the bulletin that you hopefully got when you arrived. Uh, if you're new to the Bible, the... Um, and you're opening it up, the, the larger numbers are chapter numbers, the smaller numbers are verse numbers. So as we are in Philippians 4, we're going to be in verses 10 through 13. Paul has been writing to the church at Philippi and urging them to rejoice in the Lord, to, to uh, be unified together in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and in his power. And as we are going to see this morning, he is going to reveal to us that nothing of ourselves is outside of the grasp and the authority of the Lord Jesus, including our money. But in fact, our money is a means by which our Lord can bring us and draw us and push us towards himself. So Philippians 4, verses 10 through 13. Philippians 4, 10 to 13. But as we prepare to get started, I want to ask, I want to begin by asking you a question. Have you ever climbed a mountain? Maybe you've hiked up peaks in the White Mountains in New Hampshire. You know, those peaks that are what, 4,000, 5,000, 6,000 feet tall? I think the tallest of which is actually Mount Washington, which stands 6,288 feet above sea level. If you were going to try to climb Mount Washington or any of these other tall peaks in the White Mountains, you'd have to deal with extreme winds, depending on the time of year, heavy rains or snow, fog, brutal cold. These elements, all of these, they just batter you as you ascend higher and higher and higher up the mountain. Yet for the challenge that the White Mountains are, they are only about a half as high as the peaks in the Rocky Mountains. The peaks in the Rockies stretch 10,000, 12,000, 14,000 feet high. Mount Elbert, the tallest mountain in the Rockies, stands 14,443 feet above sea level. The difficulties of the Rockies include low oxygen levels and steep mountain faces that demand greater mountain climbing skills than the, than the White Mountains would demand. In life, we consider climbing a mountain to be a metaphor for achievement, for accomplishment. What mountains have you climbed? In the Christian life, we also recognize, as we look back upon our growth as Christians, that there are mountains that we have climbed. Now, the illustration breaks down a little bit because we know as Christians, ultimately, it is God that carries us over these mountains. So hear me saying that. But what are the mountains that God has carried you over, that you have climbed? Maybe mountains of taming your tongue. You once were more free-flowing in your words. Divisive, harmful, hateful even. And yet God has shown you that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And he has transformed your words. Or maybe you've grown in how you handle your attitude towards others. You seek to be charitable and patient as opposed to condescending and impatient. And this has been a process, as it's a process for all of us. In various ways, whether it's things like this or a myriad of other ways that God has given growth to you as a follower of Christ, growth up these or other mountains can be difficult. Perhaps some of these that I've mentioned or others that just come to your own mind feel like climbing the White Mountains. Fairly difficult. Or maybe some of them are more difficult and they're more like you had to climb the highest peaks in the Rocky Mountains. Yet, for as high as these mountains are, 
there are mountains that are far more daunting than these. The Himalayas, which are capped by Mount Everest, 29,029 feet above sea level, more than double the height of the tallest peak in the Rocky Mountains, Mount Albert. The Himalayas provide an altogether different test. To climb the Himalayas, you need a Sherpa to guide you, really to protect you and keep you alive. You need specialized professional mountaineering equipment that you're not going to find at the outdoor store just down the road. And you need months and months of physical training to even have a chance at summiting Mount Everest. For many of us in the Christian life, we talk about the White Mountains, the Rocky Mountains, now we look at the Himalayas. That highest peak of all when it comes to our growth is trusting God with our money. Trusting God when it comes to finances. How do I trust God when my business or work has taken an absolute pounding over the last six months? or Maybe even over the last six years. How do I trust God as I watch home values go higher and higher and higher, yet my income is going lower and lower and lower? How do I trust God as I watch the unemployment pool just fill up and I feel like I'm competing with dozens, even hundreds of other people for the small number of jobs that are in my field? How do I trust God with skyrocketing tuition costs and student loan debt that seems insurmountable? And I'm wondering, why am I paying these tuition fees to do class over Zoom or Skype? Those are good questions to ask. There's also another one to ask from a different angle that maybe you don't consider as we talk about how do we trust God with our money, and that is this. How do I maintain reliance upon God when everything is good? How do I maintain reliance upon God when work is going well, when I have little to no debt, when my investments are fine, when the home renovations that I just did worked, came out great? Well, Philippians 4, 10 to 13 shows us that amidst the challenges that money brings, Christ alone is our contentment and strength. But don't take my word for it. Let's read it together. Philippians 4, verses 10 to 13. I invite you to follow along silently as I read. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, writes, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Amidst the challenges that money brings, Christ alone is our contentment and our strength. We're going to see three things this morning. Paul's staggering perspective, two distinct challenges, and our sure strength. Once again, Paul's staggering perspective, two distinct challenges, and our sure strength. So the context of what the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Philippi is in verse 10 if you look at it. He's facing financial need, and the church was finally at long last able to come alongside of him and meet him in caring for this financial need. And so Paul rejoiced in their care for him in verse 10. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. 
So Paul's rejoicing, hey, they've sent financial aid, this seems good, but as we're going to see next week in verses 14 to 23, I think he's actually more rejoicing for their own good, for what it reveals to them about their spiritual maturity, and about their hearts towards God. But we'll get to that next week. But what we see in verse 11 is that after receiving this gift, we see Paul's staggering perspective in regards to money and in regards to provision and in regards to God's care for him. And so you read it in verse 11, it says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Let me read that again. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, because I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Obviously, you read this, and it's a perspective towards money that we all have, right? I'm just kidding. If anything, we have learned, we could rewrite this more, more accurately, probably, to say that we have learned in whatever situation we are in to be discontent, not content. But here's the issue when it comes to Christ, when it comes to cash, when it comes to contentment, when it comes to our money and our hearts towards God. Our perspective towards money doesn't just reveal what we think about money, but it reveals something far deeper. It reveals what we think about God. And particularly, it reveals whether or not we believe God is good and whether or not we believe God can be trusted. The perspective that we can be given over to is if I have money and I'm taken care of, then that means God is good. If I don't have money and I am not taken care of, I don't know what to make of God. Is he good? Can I trust him? That's the kind of the, mind, the, the mindset or the worldview that we can so easily fall into. But it's not that simple. Here, Paul presents to us an entirely different mindset towards money that views whether you have a little or a lot, views them as simply as a means in which we grow in our trust in the Lord Jesus all the more. Look at this as he describes two distinct challenges that we face when it comes to money. Two distinct challenges. Verse 12, I I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Do you see that as I say two distinct challenges? You see these words he throws together here. I know how to be brought low and to abound. The secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. He presents poverty and plenty as challenges to his heart in trusting the Lord. Let that sink in. Now we're going to get to the challenge of plenty in a moment, but first let's look at the one that we might more naturally think of, and that is the challenge of poverty. Have you ever felt a little disingenuous singing about the love of God on Sundays while the relentless stream of bills that hunt your mailbox or hunt your email inbox the other six days a week seems to lead you to question whether The love of God is there when there's more bill that you have to face than there's money in your bank account. Brothers and sisters, the last thing I want to do is minimize or dismiss the difficult, even painful financial circumstances that some of you might be facing or even are facing even now. But as Paul writes of challenges in verse 12, we must seek to steady ourselves and to recognize the perspective through which he approaches and understands these financial challenges on the part of the Christian. Here's the deal. Paul doesn't view financial hardship as something that stops you from knowing God's goodness, but rather it's actually a means through which you might know his goodness all the more beautifully. You see, sometimes we can think, to use a driving analogy, we can think of if if I am facing a financial challenge that I'm driving down the road and all of a sudden I'm out of money and it's like it's a road closure that forces me to stop and I'm not going to know God's goodness or I'm not going to experience God's goodness 
because I, I don't have this money. How am I going to pay my bills? How am I going to provide food on the table? How am I going to do all these things and know God's goodness if I can't do this? But what Paul presents to us is that financial difficulty is not a road closure, but it can actually be a taxi through which we experience the goodness of God all the more wonderfully. Paul doesn't detach the bills that are coming due from the health of his soul. Rather, these bills serve a purpose that is far greater than keeping the lights on or keeping food on the table. They serve the purpose of reminding us again and again and again that our hope rests only in God. It's entirely possible, understand this, understand this, it is entirely possible that you might live paycheck to paycheck for the rest of your life, and that might be the kindness of God to you in repeatedly showing you his faithfulness again and again. And repeatedly refusing allow your heart, allowing your heart to be seduced by the sweet whispering lies of false security that is found in material wealth. See, it's easy to look at a dwindling bank account and rising number of bills and to say, well, God is either not powerful or he doesn't love me or he won't care for me. Or he is powerful, but he won't help me, therefore he's not good. But Paul responds to and refutes both of these. Instead, he holds up to us a perception of, of looking at ourselves and money and God's provision like this. What if instead of looking at him like he's Willy Wonka and we want whatever all the other kids are getting, if you remember Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? Well, I want their, what they're getting. I want what they're getting. I want what they're getting. Paul holds up this situation to us. Caught my notes there. You see that? Paul holds up this situation and says, instead of looking at one another and seeing the financial gain that others have and being envious or thinking, does God love them more clearly? What if we looked at the financial boat that we are in and then we look at our neighbor who perhaps has a little more money and we said to ourselves, what if God is actually not just this angry taskmaster, but he's a loving doctor who is going to give my soul what I need just as he gives other souls what they need. And he recognized that the things that he gives another person the things that he gives in, in order to care for them, he knows that if he gave them to us, they might actually not be a medicine that heals, but be a medicine that kills our souls. For some of us, the greater danger than the danger of poverty when it comes to our souls and our trust in God is the danger of plenty and the danger of taking our eyes off of him because we feel sufficient in all that we have. So, Paul holds this perspective of, of us. And he holds this up and he says, as facing these tests, he says, let your poverty in this life push you towards the richness of Christ. Here are the words of Andrew Bonar. The more we know of Christ here, the more we enjoy of heaven here. And so may our little in this life push us to the fullness of Christ and the experiencing of his glory and of his goodness. Now, that's the test of poverty. But now, what about this test of plenty? This test of plenty. Poverty tells us to be careful what we think about ourselves or be careful what we think about God's goodness. Plenty confronts us with to be careful what we think about our need for God. Look at this in verse 12. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So you see this. I know how to, be, I know how to abound. 
I know how to face plenty. I know how to face abundance. Those are those three words there that are, that are things that might cause us to say, okay, financial difficulty when it comes to trusting God is not just a matter of not having enough. It might be a matter of having too much. So just as poverty can lead us to the false conclusion that God is not good, plenty can lead us to the damning conclusion that we don't need God. So here's the deal as we seek to understand or how we understand money. Financial plenty seeks to lull our souls to sleep by sweetly whispering a false sense of security to our souls. And if I can be honest, this is the challenge that more of us face than others. Sure, we might not have abundant wealth and resources when compared to our neighbors, or we might. But we're also not sitting here having to pray, Lord, give us, give us this day our daily bread, because we don't know where the next meal is going to come from. And the danger we have to be wary of is not being lulled to sleep by a lack of what we perceive to be need in our lives. So let me ask you some kind of diagnostic questions. How do I know if I'm falling prey to the challenges of abounding, of facing plenty and abundance? Let me ask these, and only you answer them deep in your heart. Do you believe in God's goodness, at least partially because of the comforts that you enjoy in this life? When you think of God's goodness, why do you think that He is good? Is it because of the money or the luxuries or the successes or the safeties that He has given you in this life? Or is it because of the mercy that He has poured out upon you in this life? said succinctly, is God good because of the money he gives you or the mercy he's lavished upon you? When it comes to giving, is your heart one of continued generosity? Or is it one of guardedness or of greed? Three G's there, one of which I would submit before you, is God glorifying. Generosity, guardedness, or greed. Many of us would probably say to ourselves, I'm not really greedy. I give. I, I, I support things. I, 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 I find good causes, and I, I, I support them, and that's good. I think the danger that so many of us, myself included, fall into is not the one of radical generosity or not the one of radical greed, but the one of wise guardedness. And so as we ask this, we have to ask ourselves, why, would, why are we guarded? Sure, we must be wise financial managers. But we must be careful not so as to trust our wisdom above God's provision. We must be careful when it comes to looking at money not to view ourselves as anything more than middle managers and not as sovereign ones who control it all. For we who have been given much have been given a stewardship that we will be held accountable for in regards to how we steward the resources God has given us for the glory of his name. Many pastors and Christians speak of tithing, giving, a one, giving 10% of one's income to the work of the church. Now, this is a good principle or place to start, but what we see in the New Testament church is a call to sacrificial giving on the part of the Christian. For some, that might mean even more than 10%, and it's possible for some that might mean even less than 10%. So how should I approach giving? How should I approach my heart? How should I approach the challenge of plenty? Well, as you think about this, I commend to you this quote from C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. When talking about giving, he said, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. 
In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, on luxuries, on amusements, etc., is up to the standard common amongst those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditures exclude them. I think Lewis is on to something here. So many of us want to, want to say, what is the dollar amount that I must give in order to, to, to be okay? But we don't have that. We must give in a manner that brings glory to God and shows our, in our hearts that our hope is not in ourselves or not in our bank account, but is in God. And that is between you and God. May the Spirit do work in you and guiding you in that. For some of us, that pinch might come at $10 or at $100. For others, that pinch or that hampering doesn't even come at $10,000 or $100,000. Whatever helps us to freely acknowledge but we are, that we are just but ma- managers of God's assets and, the, and we, that He has entrusted us with, that we have the responsibility of stewarding them for His purposes. My friend, I share this with you not because the church's bank accounts are in great need. God has been very kind to us. Our church has practiced what I believe to be commendable generosity, particularly over the last few months even. This is not some guilt guilt trip or anything because the accounts are low, and so Stephen said, ah, I better dig something up to find money. No, this is just where we're going, making our way through Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. But I hope what you see here is not an effort to gain more money, but an effort to care for your soul. An effort to care for hearts. Because the greatest thing that I care for as a pastor is that our hearts trust in the Lord and the Lord alone and in no other false lords. And money is something that we can so easily give ourselves into trusting above anything else. Recently I saw a video of a stuntman who was skydiving without a parachute. His plan, he was jumping with a group of people, and his plan was to jump out of the plane and then somewhere in midair catch up to and latch on to another skydiver who had a parachute, and then the two of them would use that one parachute to go all the way down. Sounds fun, right? Not for me. But on the video, the thing that struck me as odd was that right before jumping out of the plane, without a parachute, this stuntman made sure to put on his safety goggles. I worry that sometimes that's our attitude towards money or even towards health, where we consider ourselves secure by putting on our safety goggles, but we are not giving consideration to our own soul and a greater security we need as we free fall while thinking we are secure. It's possible that some of us in here, out here, not in here, out here today, The God that we have trusted in above any other is the God of cash. It is where we find our security. It is where we find our value. It is where we find our purpose. And the Apostle Paul holds up before you something that says no, 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 no. Money is not a means that either stops you from knowing God in the case of poverty, nor is it a means whereby as you journey that you have so much in the case of plenty that you pull off and you enjoy the rest stop, you enjoy all the sights to be seen here. No money, whether in poverty or in plenty, is a taxi that is the vehicle through which we hold money loosely and yet we allow it to, to, to drive us, the challenges of poverty and plenty, 
to drive us to see the sufficiency of Christ our Lord. As we hold our money loosely, as we pray to Him and trust and reliance on His care and His goodness to us in times of need. So a good question for us as we approach money is simply this. As I manage my money, what is the best thing that is going to help me to trust and worship my Lord as the supreme joy, supreme value, supreme purpose of my life? And then the ball is in our courts between you and the Holy Spirit as he works in you. But may I share with you what our strength is as we embrace these challenges of poverty and of plenty. Our strength does not rest in ourselves, but our strength rests in Christ. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is one of the most well-known Bible verses in all of the Bible. We see it in sports. We tell it to ourselves before a big, big test in school, or at least I used to do that. Um, have you ever seen a, a ball game or something? Remember when they used to play sports before the pandemic? And like you, you'd have a football game or something, and, and players on both teams would have Philippians 4.13 like written on their eye black. And it's like, okay, so both teams are going to play, and both teams are going to say, I can win this game through Christ who strengthens me. But inevitably, one team loses. So what's happening here is either these football teams are disproving God's word, or that's not what the verse means. So what the verse means, Paul says here, is actually this mean of I can face these challenges. All things is the full span of financial realities that we might face. Whatever we might face in financial, in financial reality as a test, Paul says, I can face that through Christ who strengthens me. So money, we, we turn and start viewing it not, as, not just as a blessing through which God provides for us, but even so much in life, so many things, so many good things, we can turn into God things and they become idols, where blessings it slowly through the sinfulness of our hearts become tests. Because we take something that God has goodly, kindly given to us and make it into something that we worship above God himself. And so Paul says, I can face this test through Christ who strengthens me. And this verse is very good for us. It's an important lesson about context and understanding the Bible, understanding what it means for us today. See, a good principle, make note of this, consider it, write it down, consider it for later, whatever, however you might want to remember it. In, in reading the Bible, no verse, no passage, no chapter, no book can mean something for us today or for you today that it didn't mean for the original audience when it was first written. So to unlock the power of this verse, we have to understand the purpose of the verse. You don't take a medicine that is intended to serve an upset stomach in order to help with a brutal headache. This verse does not help you win football games. It helps you to face the challenges of money. The power is known in how it addresses the purpose. So what verse 13 shows us is that money gives every single one of us the opportunity to behold and be strengthened and to, to magnify the glory of the risen Lord Jesus that we sing about in whatever situation we find ourselves. Whatever the challenge is, I can ride the wave of that challenge of praying day by day for provision if I'm living paycheck to paycheck, of praying day by day for mercy as I'm going, out, going about my business, or of recognizing as, as abundance comes in, as, as money just flows into my account, recognizing, Lord, I need your mercy to ride the wave of this challenge, to keep my eyes, my heart set upon Christ as my, my, my joy, my reward above all else. Money is the, the wave that we can ride to the shore of God's goodness. But it is not the be-all, end-all. Paul's eyes are fixed on a Savior who is sufficient to supply all of his needs because he has already supplied his blood for his greatest need when he atoned for Paul's sins. 
on the cross. You see, the whole picture of Christianity can be understood in the parable of how we approach money. Christianity is not about God meeting your needs with what you think you need. It is about Him meeting our needs with what He knows we need. And He knows that we needed the cross more than we needed cash. Do you want this? Do you want to be freed from the slavery of dependence upon money? Come to Christ. You want to be freed from feeling like even as your bank account grows, there's this pressure of you to keep up with the Joneses. Of continue to chase more and more and more of the things that this world offers. Look to Christ who offers you himself. And look to Christ who promises to meet you with a goodness and a glory that you cannot buy, yet is far greater than the luxuries of this life. And consider the disposition of Christ and how we are strengthened in Christ by looking at Christ's weakness at the cross. The cross humbles our pride and our plenty, and it shows us our Savior who is pierced for our transgressions while we believe ourselves to be lacking. The very purpose of your bank account and of your bills is to show you the value of God who is infinitely greater than your bank account or your bills. So let me conclude by asking us some application questions briefly and then we will be done. If you're in the camp of poverty, how is your attitude towards the wealthy? Do you look at those who are wealthy with scorn or with jealousy? May I offer you a caution from my own life? I know in my own life I find it easier to get angry with people when in fact that anger and frustration is actually towards God. If you look at others who have more than you, and there's jealousy or anger that's ultimately rooted in your feelings towards God. If you're in the camp of poverty, do you grasp the depths of the sufficiency of Christ? If we believe that God provided redemption for our sin in Christ, how do we not believe that he will graciously care for us amidst all of the toils and snares of this life? And lastly, if you're in the camp of poverty, how do you measure God's faithfulness? Don't look at your finances and ask, will he be faithful? But look at the cross. Don't look at the uncertainty of the next month. Look at the promise of the coming eternity. Don't look at what you're going through and going without and think that you are not experiencing something. Rather, look at the riches of Christ that will far outlast the American dollar and any temples that we might build to our affluence in this life. Now, if you're in the camp of plenty, let me ask you some questions. Are you generous with your money? What is your attitude towards the poor? Do you recognize that whatever you have, ultimately it came from God and he has entrusted it to you to steward and not to celebrate? Do you look for opportunities to financially care for and come to the aid of your brothers and sisters within your church family? Do you look to leverage your resources and your life for the sake of the global glory of God to the ends of the earth, giving great sacrifice that others might hear of your great God? What is your attitude towards money modeled towards your children or towards those that you might have influence over? Budgets, whether personal family budgets or even something like a church budget, says a lot about what we value and how we trust God and what we deem to be important in life and in ministry. And brothers and sisters, let us keep our eyes set not on our cash, but on our Christ. 
Let us not look at how much money we have and say he has been faithful, but let us look deeper and look at the cross and see the faithfulness of God found there and there alone. You know, once you reach the peak of Mount Washington in the, Mount, in the White Mountains or Mount Elbert in the Rocky Mountains, you look down and you see unbelievable sights. You see unbelievable imagery, colors lighting up the sky, colors lighting up the sides of mountains perhaps. But reaching the peak of Mount Everest is entirely different. At Mount Everest, you reach the peak and you see unmatched wonder that simply cannot be known or experienced or explained elsewhere. Brothers and sisters, at the Mount Everest of trusting God with our money, perhaps it is a great hill to climb, a great mountain to reach the top of. But at that top, there is an enjoyment of the glory and the goodness of God that is worth the climb. task of trusting Christ with your money might feel like a challenge that you are not yet up for. Yet Christ is your strength and he will work in you to show you his goodness and to be your contentment. And as he works this in you, whether in poverty or in plenty, you will see an unmatched wonder of his goodness and grace that simply cannot be known otherwise. The highest mountains are the hardest, but they are also the sweetest. Amidst the challenges that money brings, whether in poverty or in plenty, Christ alone is our contentment and strength. May that be the case. Let's pray. Lord God, these things are easy to state and hard to believe. My heart worries about money, worries about finances, or simply seeks to insulate and add luxuries to my life at every way I can as opposed to recognizing that my money, in whatever state it is, is an avenue through which I must trust you. So Lord, help us to be a church that we walk through this individually, as families, and as a church. May our hearts be set upon Christ. May they find him to be full and satisfying and rich. And may our souls find richness in Christ, regardless of our richness in this life, or our lack thereof. May Christ be of incomparable value to us. And may the cry of our hearts be, Blessed be your name, in whatever state we find ourselves in. It's in Christ we pray. Amen.